Church, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 18. Uh, this morning, Genesis 18, we're going to begin in verse 16. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible in front of you, you can find that on page 13. So Genesis 18, 16. While you're finding your way to Genesis 18, you know what comes after Genesis 18, right? Genesis 19. Um, and uh, I do want to make you aware of that. I'm going to be, God willing, be preaching Genesis 19 next Sunday, uh, the entire chapter. I think it's 30 plus verses. And uh, it, it is, uh, in many ways, perhaps one of the most, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, I want to say awful um, chapters in the Bible, in the sense not that God is awful or His Word is awful, but the conduct of man in Genesis 19 is in many ways unspeakable. And so I want you to be aware of that, especially you parents. And we're actually going to send out an email this week just to make sure we're, we're all aware what we're going to be covering next week. You may want to take your kids through Genesis 19 next week and be able to, to help navigate them through that. Of course, I'm going to be, when I preach it, I'm going to be very discreet with some of these issues. Um, but I just want you to be prepared. Of course, we do have children's worship available for, for those um, who would like for their children to be participating in that ministry. So just give you a heads up. I trust uh, God. I think God's going to do a great mighty work through that passage. Um, uh, it's God's word, and uh, we need to hear it. But it does deal with some very difficult uh, topics. So I want to let you be aware of that. So here we are now in Genesis 18, a much easier passage, I think, though it also has some challenges for us this morning. So let us with submissive hearts hear now the word of God. Then the men sent out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham, Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it? For the fifty righteous who are in it, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. 
He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose there are 20 found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now that we could set our hearts upon it and we might learn from you. Trust as much that you would want to speak to us. And so we come with submissive hearts, humble hearts, eager hearts to hear from our God. We believe you speak through your word. We believe it is living, abiding, active, piercing, sanctifying. And so we ask through your spirit, even as it is proclaimed today, that it would do a great and mighty work in our hearts, not just as us as individuals, but in this faith community called Hamilton Baptist Church. Be kind to us and gracious to us as we learn from you today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the early 1800s that a man named Robert Murray McShane served as a pastor in Scotland for five years. And during the five years of ministry, McShane saw over 700 people surrender their lives uh, to King Jesus. He would tell other pastors when they would inquire uh, from him why his ministry is so fruitful. He would say, preach to your people as if they were on the brink of eternity. Well, Robert McShane died at the age of 29. And yet he had a massive impact on Scotland for decades after, In fact, several years after his death, another pastor was concerned that his ministry was producing so little fruit. And so he decided, you know, I'm going to visit McShane's old church. He found an old custodian there in the church building and asked him if he knew why McShane's ministry had such an amazing impact upon those around. Well, the old man led the young pastor to McShane's study and said, sit down there at the desk. Now put your elbows on the table. The visitor obeyed. The custodian continued, Now put your face in your hands and let tears run down your cheeks. That's what Pastor McShane used to do. A contemporary of McShane's, J.C. Ryle, would write, Why is it that there is so much religious working and yet so little result in positive conversions to God? So many sermons... And so few souls saved. So much machinery and so little effect produced. So much running hither and thither, and yet so few brought to Christ. Why is all of this? The reply, he continues, is short and simple. There is not enough prayer. The cause of Christ does not need less working, but it does need, among the workers, more praying. Let us examine ourselves and amend our ways. The most successful workmen in the Lord's vineyard are those who are like their master, often and much upon their knees. This bore to be true another man in the 19th century, Hudson Taylor, the great pioneering missionary who started China Inland Missions. He had a great a, a number of uh, mission stations throughout the inland area of China, and one of them 
a great number were, were radically saved, far more than any of the other mission statements. This was a mystery to Taylor. He went there and saw what they were doing, and it didn't seem like they were doing anything different than the other mission houses were doing, and yet this, this one was so powerful in its impact for the gospel. It was a great mystery to him until he returned to England, and after speaking at a conference, a man came up and introduced himself to Taylor. And in the conversation to follow, Taylor was amazed that this man seemed to have so much information and details about what was going on in this particular mission station. So Taylor asked him, how is it that you are so conversant with the condition of that work? The man replied, oh, the missionary there and I are old college mates. For years we have regularly corresponded. He has sent me the name of inquirers and converts, and these I have daily taken to God in prayer. I wonder how much God has done in this world in response to prayer. I wonder how much God has done in my life and in your life in response to the prayers of those who know him. I would imagine that one day you are going to see that you owe a great debt, far, far more than you realize, to those who have prayed for you. I I have felt it even last month, as many of you signed up on a prayer schedule even to pray for me and my family. And, and, And not only did God answer the prayers, he did far more than all we could imagine and think, I think, because my church was praying for us and our little foster daughter. Right? How much have people prayed for you? And how much has God done through that prayer? Or maybe you could ask it this way. Are there people who would notice a change in their lives if you stopped praying for them? It, are, are there any missionaries in this world who would notice a lack of effectiveness in their ministry if you stopped to pray for them? It was John Wesley who said, God will do nothing but an answer to prayer. And now in our study of Genesis, really the study of Abraham's life for the first time in all of Scripture, we see really the first interceding prayer. And it is interesting, isn't it? Because it seems to me that he is praying for the wicked. Praying for the wicked. If you remember where we were last time, three men came to visit Abraham and had lunch with them. We've identified two of the men seem to be angels, the third being God himself. They came for two reasons. One was to encourage Sarah's faith. We saw that last time. The other reason was to investigate the wicked cities of the valley. These cities notorious for their immoral excess, for their cruelty, for their uh, their violence, for their oppression. And so lunch is now over with these men. And and you remember the awkward conversation between God and Sarah. Sarah, in the one time she gets to talk to God, laughs at him and then lies to him. And now Abraham is escorting his guests out of camp. I I imagine it's an uncomfortable walk for them. Perhaps he said, you know, thanks for coming over. Sorry my wife was mocking you and laughing at you and that whole thing. And and as they walk, and, and now the sun is hanging low in the western horizon, Abraham's heavenly guest looks down on the city of Sodom, as you see in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. It's at this point in looking at Sodom that God asked this question recorded in verse 17. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? You ever say something like to that to a friend? I'm not really sure if I should tell you this, right? And you're really just torturing them, aren't you, a little bit? 
And hopefully you've already decided, yeah, I am going to tell you this, but you're, you're wrestling with it a little bit. It seems like God's doing that. Shall I, shall I tell Abraham, you know, I'm about to do something, you know, and here Abraham's here, and we've, we established last week, as Scripture says, Abraham's God's friend. They're in covenant together. And so God says, yeah, I think I'll tell Abraham what I'm going to do. And he begins to describe the, the blessings of the covenant in, in this context of the friendship that God has with Abraham. If you see kind of three characters in the story, well, the first might be the friends, the friends. And God lays out all the blessings that he has planned for Abraham. Once again, you see that in verse 18, seeing that Abraham will surely become, shall surely become a great nation, great and mighty nation, and all the nations on the earth shall be blessed in him. So he reminds Abraham that one day you're going to be a great nation, but he reminds him that the reason I'm going to make you a great nation is that you will bless other nations. In fact, that's the whole point for me choosing you, as you see in verse 19. For I have chosen him. I've chosen him to make him great so that he might be a blessing to other people, to all the people on the earth. He said, I've elected you. I've chosen you. You're mine, that, I, that you might take my blessings to all the world. In fact, you read on in verse 19. It says, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Right? And, and so you see here very interestingly, I think, that, that God in unfolding the covenantal blessings, he has a very, uh, he has a multi-generational interest, Right? The, the plan is, I'm going to bless the world through your descendants. That's prefigured in Israel, fulfilled in Christ, and continues through the sons and daughters of Abraham, namely the church. He says it's going to start with you, and it's going to be with you and with your children. And so therefore, he says in verse 19, you are to command your children. Right? So I want you to see this connection. He says to Abraham, command your children. Why? So that your neighbors will be blessed. So that eventually the nations will be blessed. Because if I give you this land and I give you kids, but they don't follow me, they don't, they don't pursue me, it's going to make a mess of everything. By the way, that is largely the history of Israel, isn't it? But God's desire is, is that they, they would be a blessing to their neighbors, not a curse. He doesn't want us to take our blessings from him and do harmful things and forget others around us. So he says, I'm going to bless you. And if you obey, if you teach your kids to obey, you do this so that the neighbors and the nations will know who I truly am. So he needs to teach his kids. Command your children, he says. Well, teach them what? Well, he says right there in verse 19, to keep the way of the Lord by doing two things, righteousness and justice. So remember, those in covenant with God, we are to seek righteousness and we are to seek justice. Righteousness in our relationship to God, justice in our relationship to others. We are to obey God, we are to love our neighbors, and we are to teach that to the next generation. And so the covenant that you are in with God is not just about you. It's about your kids. It's about your grandkids. It's about the children in this church. We need to think in our relationship with God in terms of legacy, right? We need to think, okay, how are we setting up our kids not to succeed 
professionally or simply succeed financially, but how are we setting up our children to succeed spiritually in order that they might bless those around them? That the things that I do and don't do are going to impact the generations that are going to come after me. In fact, you want to see a very negative example of a Christian who does not teach his children the way of the Lord. Read Genesis 19, as we will next week, as I already established. Lot um, shows us what it's like when we don't command our children the ways of the Lord. We are called to actually do that. In fact, some of you here, I think, should see yourselves as patriarchs, just like Abraham. Matriarchs like Sarah. That is, that you've come from a non-Christian background, and now God has chosen you, just like he chose Abraham. And you're thinking, we're starting something new here. Right? Lager and I have talked about this from almost the very beginning of our marriage. I'm a patriarch. You're a matriarch. We both come from pagan backgrounds. And we're starting over. We're, we're not continuing the ambitions and the vision and the priorities of the life in which we are raised. Something new is beginning with us. We're starting a new nation. We affectionately call it the car nation. And, and we're excited that that's this brand new family is beginning. And we're, the hope is that this will be passed on not just to our children, but to their children and to their children and to their children that we begin something new that we think about the legacy that we might leave behind. And I think this is massively important. And in light of this verse here, in verse 19, this exhortation to command your children, may I thank those of you who happen to serve in our, our children's Sunday school classes and in our nurseries and in our youth group and in our children's worship. And week after week, you're working with these kids. And sometimes, especially if there's a carn kid, it's not all that easy, right? Um, and yet you do so. And, and I, I want you to understand, not, on, not only is what you're doing honoring of God, not only is it actually fulfilling the very purposes of God for these children, it is, it is potentially a massive impact not only in their lives, but in their children's lives and their children's children's lives, and that you are helping to establish a legacy as you teach these children the, the way of the Lord, the way of our God. And so praise God for people who serve in those ministries. And so God, God, God brings Abraham in here, and he says, okay, I'm going to let you in on my plan for Sodom. Why? To help you understand my justice. Right? Because you're to teach your children the way of justice. I want you to teach your kids about sin and judgment. And one day Abraham, I trust, is going to point down to the ashen remains of Sodom. And he's going to tell his children, that's what God thinks of sin. That's what judgment looks like. In fact, Peter explained that God would burn Sodom and Gomorrah as, quote, an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Or we might, for our purposes, say, to his enemies. That's the second group we see. We see his friends now consider his enemies there in verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. He says there's an outcry taking place. That's often used, this word outcry, to describe um, the cries of the oppressed, the cries of the abused. When Cain killed Abel, was it God, God not say, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And I think heaven is probably full of these kind of cries of what's going on in the Sodoms and Gomorrahs of this world, the the very grave sins that God talks about, the violence, the wickedness, the corruption, 
and their unpunished sin is crying out to God for what? For justice, just like the blood of Abel. In fact, God intends to investigate the whole thing, as you see in verse 21. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so he sends his two angels down to see. Now, of course, God knows, doesn't he? Right? I mean, he is all-knowing. But in saying he's going down to investigate, what he is doing is he's assuring us that his judgments are based on truth. He wants us to have confidence that whenever judgment comes, it's perfect. God doesn't go on hearsay. He's going to judge on what actually happens. So he sends two angels to investigate. I think it's a helpful precedent for us that when we, as opportunity presents, listen to the cries of the hurting, right? We, we, we probably would do best not to believe everything that you've heard until you check it out yourself. There seems to always be two sides to the story. And so God goes down to investigate um, and, and, and that he might know what's going on. See, God's aware of all the injustices. We're not. God, God knows everything. No sin has ever gone unnoticed by him. He hears the cry of a terrified child hiding from a drunken father. God hears the cry of an old man being swindled out of his life savings. God hears the cry of a teenage girl being assaulted in the back of a car. God hears the cries of a wife abandoned by her husband. As one pastor put it, these cries are only a fraction of the millions of cries that are rising every minute of every day from every street and every city and village of our land. The cries of painful silence go up all at once in a deafening roar, and God hears them all. It does not go unnoticed. Be assured that God hears it all, and he will act in judgment. He will judge. And, and, and if these things are proved to be true, he says, I'm going to go down and check it out. And if it is, then judgment literally will rain down upon these cities. Now, we're, we tend to be uncomfortable with the idea of God's wrath in our day, uncomfortable with the idea that God is judgment. I don't like the God of the Old Testament, people say. He seems very cranky to me. I like the God in the New Testament. He, I think he got saved and became more gentle and, and all the rest, right? And he's just a nice guy now, right? Please understand... You can't have love without wrath. You can't. If, if my daughter is being abused and I just shrug my shoulders as if nothing is going on, what would you conclude? I must not love my daughter very much. Right? Wrath is not the opposite of love. Apathy is. And so God will have wrath, just as anybody will have wrath, when something he loves and cherishes is being harmed and being destroyed. And he will pour out that wrath upon the wicked, upon his enemies. And so many people sin and sin and sin, and they think there's no judgment and there's no accountability, and God must not care. Please understand, he does care. He is, praise God, patient with us, but he cares, and there is coming a day of judgment. There's coming a day of reckoning. And so, my friends, please be not deceived. As Paul would write to the Ephesian church, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who's covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's New Testament. God warns us just as he warned Abraham. And may that warning for some of you 
lead you to repentance, that you might receive his forgiveness, even as Abraham prays. You see, thirdly, Abraham kind of stands in between, doesn't he? We see the friends of God and the enemies of God, and now we come to the one who stands in the middle, as you see in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. So the angels go down to investigate, leaving Abraham and the Lord alone. Right? At this point, in light of what God has shared with him, Abraham begins, if you will, to pray. He begins to intercede. And, and this, in fact, this is how his prayer begins. God reveals his word to him. This is what I'm going to do. And what is his prayer? His prayer is simply a response to the word of God. I, I mention this because many, many spiritual people kind of imagine God however they want. They say things like, I prefer to think of God this way, or I like to think of God that way. We're not at liberty to do that. We're to think of God as how he reveals himself, and he reveals his character. He reveals his plan, and Abraham then comes. In light of what he's heard from the word of God, he then responds to God in prayer. In fact, he even approaches him there in verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And so here's his question. He, he makes this intercession, right? Are, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. You're going to drop a bomb on the good guys along with the bad guys. And he comes up with this argument, this hypothetical situation, which he begins there in verse 24. It's a very odd conversation, isn't it? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, he says, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He says, God, well, what if, what if there are 50 righteous guys down there? Are you still going to destroy the whole place? That doesn't seem right to me. I know you, you hate injustice, but I know you also love righteousness. For the sake of 50, will you, what does he say, spare the whole city? And God says what? Well, verse 26. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. God says, okay, 50 righteous. I love righteousness so much, I'll spare the whole place for 50 righteous, for the 50 righteous people. And for the sake of 50, I'll spare thousands of wicked. Which begins this very weird conversation. Abraham starts working down, as you see in verse 27. Abraham answered, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, who am I but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 are lacking. Now, for those of you who are challenged in math, that's 45, okay? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45. Again, he spoke to him, and suppose there are 40 found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O Lord, let the, let, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there, 10 righteous. And he answered, God answered, For the sake of 10 righteous ones, I will not destroy the entire city. Right? So he, he's working his way down. Uh, 40, will you, say this, will you save it for 40? Yeah, I'll save it for 40. 30, yeah, 20, yeah, 10, yeah. He's like a reverse auctioneer. Right? 
We got 50, 50, 50, yeah, I see 50, what about 40, 40, 40, we got 30, so show me 30, right? And he's just kind of going down, right? And if it gets down, he says, if there's 10, if there's 10 righteous, for the sake of 10 righteous, we'll, we'll save the entire city. And I think what Abraham is doing, I think it's beautiful and powerful, and he's teaching us how to intercede, how to stand in between, how to pray. In fact, you see at least four truths about his his prayers here, first of all, and quickly, it is a persevering prayer, isn't it? He's relentless. He intercedes for Sodom six different times. It's almost as if he has heard Jesus' parable of the unjust judge. Remember the, the widow just continually going after that judge? The point Jesus taught us, you ought to always pray and not lose heart. For some reason, and it's beyond me why, God has decided to answer prayers, some prayers, only once we persevere in asking. Perhaps it, it shows our unwavering faith or our commitment to what we're asking for. Do you persevere in prayer or do you give up? I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if we give up often right before God's about to answer. He loves to answer. He loves to answer. Just like any father loves to, Fathers, don't you like to say yes? Right? We love, I don't like saying no. I like, I like to say yes. I love to say yes to my kids. Daddy, can we get ice cream? I love saying, yeah, let's do it. Right? God loves to say yes. We must persevere. Uh, secondly, and I don't know how to excuse my English here. I don't know how to put this, but it is a, a meekly bold prayer. Or it's a boldly meek prayer, however you like. It's bold, isn't it? It's ag- it seems aggressive. He's hag- it's like he's haggling over the price of fruit in the market. What, what, one, one pastor said, Abraham is a man who will not take yes for an answer. Every time God says yes, he says, well, I want one more. What, what, what about 30? Give me more. Give me more. Right? It's like my kids. Can I have one scoop? Yes. Can I have two scoops? Yes. Right? Can I have 10 scoops? Well, hold on now. Right? Okay. This is, is very aggressive. And I think, to be honest, this makes conservative religious folk a little uncomfortable, which is, I think pretty much describes most of us, doesn't it? Right? I mean, you pray like that? Are you bold like that? You haggle with God? And we read that and it's like, I don't know about that. It's very aggressive praying. And at the same time, it's very meek praying, isn't it? It's humble. I'm dust and ashes, he says. Don't be angry with me. Please don't stomp on me, right? Don't squash me. And therefore, it makes, if you will, liberal religious people very uncomfortable. Dust and ashes? What are you talking about? You're great, Abraham. What are you, talking, why are you bringing yourself down like that? Right? Well, angry? Why would God ever be angry with you, they might say. So modern people, of course, think of God just as this loving buddy. Abraham has this sense of unworthiness even to be in his very presence. He's humble and at the same time bold. Right? He's boldly meek. He's meekly bold. In other words, Abraham has a sense of his unworthiness, so he's very meek, and he has an incredible confidence that God wants to bless, so he's very bold. I think this is beautiful because that's typically, this is typically not how we approach God. In fact, if you think about our culture, and whenever, there, for instance, there's a movie when God's a character in the movie, he seems like God is either... Um, Far off in distance, and he's sending his angels to, you know, the guardian angels to go do his bidding. He's far too busy to be involved in your life and my life. Or he's like some wisecracking goof, like a George Burns munching on a cigar, right? I mean, he's one or the other, okay? 
But he, he's either high, high and lifted up, or, or he's, he's like the, the butler sitting in the corner just waiting to be called upon. And Abraham, Abraham's a very robust understanding of who God is. That God is both infinitely holy, and therefore he's humble, and infinitely loving, and therefore he's bold at the same time. You see, the gospel creates that tension in us. If you rightly understand what God has done for us, you will see that you are so wicked that God had to die for you. That will do what in your heart? That will humble you. And at the same time, you will see that you are so loved that God was willing to die for you. And that will do what in your heart? It will lift you up. The gospel does both at the same time. It brings us down and, and lifts us up. And if we understand that, we'll be like Abraham, right? Who is in awe of our great God and yet at the same time close to him. And this should be seen in our prayers. I think it should be seen in all of our life. In fact, we mentioned this last time, didn't we? When we saw Genesis 15, he shows up in a smoking fire pot. They're passing through butchered animals. Genesis 18, he shows up with dirty feet ready for lunch. He's both. God is holy and awesome and majestic. He is to be feared. Yes. God is close and tender and gentle, and he is to be embraced. Yes. He is, to use theological language, transcendent, and he is imminent. He is uncreated, and he's incarnational. He is infinite, and he is intimate. And I'll tell you, no one would ever create a God like this. You look at every religion in this world created by man. He's either one or the other. He's on one extreme or he's other other extreme. It's only in Christianity that brings this all together and shows us the true nature of who God is. And to be honest, as a pastor, I'm constantly thinking about these things, praying about them, especially in regards to our, our corporate worship. Because I don't want our corporate worship to fall so far on the side that God is just, just so close to us that we lose his holiness. And I don't want to be over here where he's just, it's all holiness and awe that we don't experience his tenderness and his gentleness. And so much thought in the songs we sing and the scriptures we read and the prayers we offer are thought, how can we bring these two realities together so that we are truly approaching not a God of our own creation, but the true God who is both holy and gracious. It is a meekly bold prayer. Third, you notice it is a missional prayer. A missional prayer. God explains he's going to do what? He's going to destroy this city. Abraham asks him not to. Who's he praying for? I asked my kids that last night. Who's he praying for? It seems to me he's praying for Sodom. He's praying for the city. He's praying, you'll see last week, bad, vile, wicked, violent people. And Abraham prays for them. Now some people think, no, no, he's, he's praying for Lot, who lives down in Sodom. And I, I, I must read that in three or four commentaries. He's praying for Lot. I, I'm, I don't buy it. I, I think if he's praying for Lot, he would say something like to God, oh yeah, it's about time you drop the bomb on that place. But before you do, I got a nephew down there. Can you get him out for me? Right? That'd be a very easy prayer to do. But in fact, we actually see prayers like that in the Old Testament. God, God's people say, yeah, destroy those people, but save our people. Abraham's not saying, save my people. That's not what he's saying. Look, look again in verse 24. This is the key to the whole thing, I think. He says, will you sweep away the place and not spare what? Spare it. Will you spare it? 
He's pleading for Sodom. He's like the city's priest. He's interceding for them. He's standing in between. Now, why? <laughs> That's the question. That Joe, why would he pray for a place like that? Why would he ask for God's mercy on a place for that? I wonder, I'm speculating here, but I wonder if he finally understands that he is to be a channel of blessing to the nations. Right? Isn't that why God chose him? Isn't that what God just said to him? Remember verse 18, what did he say? You'll become a great nation, and what? All the earth shall be blessed through you. Right? You're going to be a blessing. And so what does he do? God just said, I'm choosing you to bless others, bless those around, bless other nations. And there's Sodom, the city next door. And he's what? He's blessing Sodom. He's praying for Sodom. He cares about the whole city. He cares about the wicked city. He cares about the terrible city. He wants God to spare Sodom. And it's this amazing prayer because what we are usually preoccupied with is personal peace and comfort and, and, and getting rid of the troubles in our lives. And Abraham is laying himself out for his neighbors, his terrible, terrible neighbors, because he loves his neighbor. Is that how you pray? Would you intercede for Sodom? I mean, I don't know. Pick pick your city, right? God says, I'm going to drop a bomb on Hollywood. Or whatever it is. Would you say, Oh, God, please don't. Please, please, will you spare all those in Hollywood? Right? Or would you say, yes, it's about time. Get them. Do you pray for those people? Do you, do you pray for people that are wicked and evil, that you too might be a blessing to your neighbors and the nations? And you might think, well, well why, why would I? Why would I pray for places like that? Well, because of the gospel. Because were you too not wicked? And what did God do with you, Christian? He spared you. He spared you of the coming judgment that you had earned. And once you see yourself receiving the grace of God, you'll begin to pray for the grace of God upon other people. When we think we're the good guys, they're the wicked guys, go get them, God, we don't know the gospel. When we realize that we're all wicked and God is the only good guy and he has spared us and he has spared us for a reason. There are many reasons he has spared us, but one reason that God has spared you is so that you might be a blessing to others, so that you might even intercede for them. That's why you're in that family, Christian. That's why you're in that workplace and in that neighborhood and in this church and live in this county and live in this country so that we might intercede for those in our lives. That's why there's this church that has been here for next month 130 years called Hamilton Baptist Church. Why did he put us here? Well, one reason he put us here is so that we might be a blessing to Western Loudoun County for God's sake, that, we, that he would use us that others, to, others, like you and I, might be spared, right? That, that there might be revival even in the places in which we live. Do we therefore intercede? See, God, God told Abraham that his descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Well, who do those stars represent? Well, they rep- represent all those who are going to be saved. They represent people in your classroom and people... In the nations, they represent Lakota Indians and Bedini Kurds and Mandarin-speaking Chinese, as we saw this morning. 
And as sure as that star shines, God's going to be faithful to his promise. He told his son in Psalm 2, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession." Right? God's, God, I mean, uh, Josh read for us what Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 5. Every tongue, language, people, nation, the whole lot. Every, there's going to be believers from every one of them. Does that not mean the, <laughs> I'm telling you, well, listen, the greatest spiritual awakening has yet to happen. There are 6,000 unreached people groups in this world that do not have the gospel. God intends to save people from every one of them. God will save people from every one of them. And so he's going to use us. He's going to use our giving. He's going to use our going. And certainly he's going to use our prayers. And so let's pray for the work of God. Let's pray for the Sodomites. Let's pray that God would spare the people in our lives and spare the people in our county. This is what God has called us to do. That God does nothing, as Wesley said, but an answer to prayer. Lastly, you'll note that this is what I would call a Christian prayer. A Christian prayer. I return your attention to verse 24 when Abraham asks him to spare the city. In verse 26, the Lord says, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. That word spare, if you have the NIV this morning, you'll see there's an alternative translation. It could be translated, will you forgive? In fact, this word spare is translated in the Old Testament as forgive 64 times. Genesis 50, verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers. Psalm 25, consider my affliction and my trouble, forgive all my sin. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So that word spare is often in the Bible translated as forgive. And I believe that Abraham is not just simply asking that God would spare Sodom, spare them judgment. I I think he's asking him that he would forgive Sodom and therefore spare them of judgment. Right? Because Abraham, above all people on the earth in this day, knows that God is a forgiving God. How many times has he failed God? How many times has he gone over to sin, and yet God's still coming over for lunch? Right? God, God still stays with him. God still comes to him. God still gives him grace. God forgives. Right? And now he's praying that God would forgive the Sodomites. And we say, well, why is that a Christian prayer? Well, look at his, the reason. He just doesn't say, God, forgive the Sodomites. He gives God a reason to do it. What is his reason he's asking for their forgiveness? What does he say? What's his justification? For the sake of who? The righteous. In other words, will you forgive the unrighteous many for the sake of the righteous few? He's not simply asking God to set aside your holiness, set aside your judgment, overlook their sin. He's saying to God, will you let these people, uh, will, you, will, you, will, you, will, you, will the righteousness of these few, you love that righteousness so much, can it actually cover the unrighteousness of the many? And to his astonishment, I think God says what? Yeah. What if there are 50 righteous? Will that cover the many? Yeah. 40, 30, 20, 10. And God says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will cover the wicked 
with the righteousness of the few. It's Tim Keller who says, Abraham has discovered a hidden path through the insurmountable mountain of God's justice. The righteousness of another could save the unrighteous. Well, that's the end of the prayer, isn't it? In fact, you see verse 33. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Night's fallen. The two angels are arrived in Sodom by this time in search for what? Ten, ten righteous men. They, f- they find ten? No. Did his prayer work? Did God, was the city saved? No. There was not ten righteous. It's interesting to me that he stops at ten. Right? It's, it's almost like he doesn't finish the prayer. Right? He, you know, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. Uh, what, what, don't you expect him to keep going? What about five? If we find, what about four? What about three? What about two? What, what about one? He gets to 10 and he stops. You know, one pastor says he's got God on the ropes and then he goes home. Right? Well, why does he stop at 10? I, I don't know. I have no idea. But let's just, let's just imagine for a minute that he didn't. What if he said, God, if there's one righteous person in all of Sodom, will you spare the wicked? For the sake of the righteous. How do you think God would answer that question? I think it's clear, isn't it? Yeah. If there's one righteous, I'll save the many who are unrighteous. But there wasn't even one. There wasn't one in Sodom. There wasn't one in Gomorrah. There wasn't one in Abraham's camp. There wasn't one anywhere in the world. Until another would come. And he wouldn't ask God to go and search for the righteous. He would be the righteous. That he, in fact, he too, like Abraham, would intercede for the wicked. But he, he would actually pray for himself. In John 17, this one says, For their sake, for your sake, for the sake of Hamilton Baptist Church, I sanctify myself. What does that mean? I seek righteousness for their sake. For them, I will love my neighbor as myself. For them, I will love my God with all my heart, soul, and strength. For them, I will keep the law, every dot and tittle. He says he will do it. For them, I will sanctify himself. And I'm telling you today, based upon the authority of the word of God, he has found the one who is righteous. And because of that righteous one, God will spare the many, no matter how wicked they might be. He himself would take the judgment upon him when when he was nailed to the cross so that the wicked can be forgiven. You see, Abraham teaches us how to intercede, no doubt. But if you want to find your place in the story, where are you? My friends, you're living down in Sodom with the rest. That's our role. And Jesus came and he lived among us so that God would spare us. And even now he intercedes. For 1 John chapter 2 says, if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The righteous one. He is the sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He found the righteous one, and therefore you are forgiven. He found the righteous one, and therefore we are spared. Is he your advocate? Is he the one you have united to in faith, that you too might be spared the judgment of God. 
that you too might be forgiven by a holy God. God would forgive you right now if you would repent of your sin and turn to Christ in faith. Our Father, we are so thankful that the righteous one has come. If not for him, all of us, all of us would share the fate of Sodom. And so we thank you for his great work. In fact, we want to celebrate it even now as we prepare our hearts for this Lord's Supper. As we pray silently in our own hearts for just a moment that we might turn away from any known sin. That we may not profane this meal that celebrates the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And come to it with repentant hearts, trusting hearts. And so help us to turn from sin and then come to this table. Help us even as we pray. Father, we pray along with David, I believe, who said long ago, search us, O Lord, and know our hearts. Test us and see if there's any offensive way in us. And lead us in the way everlasting. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.